1: Hello everyone and welcome back to the latest edition of Arbitral Insights, our podcast series spotlighting the most inspirational people in the world of international arbitration. And I'm delighted to have with me today as our guest, Vasanti Selvratnam QC. Hello Vasanti.
0: Hello Gautam.
1: Vasanti will be known to so many of us. Uh, She deserves... An introduction that I'm gonna give her because she truly is an inspirational person and someone who I've been longing to have on this podcast series as one of our guests. She is a very eminent Queen's Counsel, made silk 20 years ago. She's joint head of 36 Stone and/or 36 Group, uh, a very prominent set of chambers in the UK, headquartered in London. She has a very varied practice in a number of areas of commercial law is a mediator and also a, a very much in-demand international arbitrator. So I'm absolutely thrilled to have you here, Vasanthi, and look forward to our chat on this podcast.
0: Well, thank you, Gautam, and thank you for the lovely introduction. It's great to be chatting with you.
1: <laughs> it's very well deserved, I can tell you. I mean, I mean, I've been I've known you for a long time, but never had a chance to do a podcast with you, so I'm looking forward to to this <laughs> one. So, Vasanthi, you are, on any estimation, an incredibly a distinguished lawyer and arbitrator. But let me try and take you right back to when it all began. And, you know, one of the things I'm always fascinated when I speak to our guests on these podcast series is what inspired you to become a lawyer Vasanthi, in the first place? And who inspired you? Yes, I mean, well, let me tell you
0: this. I'm mixed heritage. I'm partly Sri Lankan, uh, partly English, my dad being the Sri Lankan side of me. And My dad had a father who was a lawyer in Jaffna, but nobody on the Sri Lankan side of the family had followed in his footsteps. And I think my dad was really quite hopeful that I might show an aptitude for law. When my father came to the UK, he met my mother here in the late 40s. He was a trailblazer um, in his own right. And he had to make a lot of sacrifices financially to give me the best education that he could afford and that involved him taking on more than one job. And as his only daughter, I felt that I wanted to make him proud of me Um, and I think that it really led from that. I wanted to find something which played to my strengths and which he could then say, yes, it's all been worth it. And to be honest, I was far too squeamish to think of becoming a doctor. And um, my mathematical skills were not such as to drive me towards accountancy. (laughs) So that really left law. And I must say, when I had graduated, I was at King's College London, both for my undergraduate degree and my master's. I had intended to go back to academic life and to teach international trade, shipping law. But to give myself more options in case academic life turned out not to suit me after all, I decided that I should complete my professional training either by taking the bar exams or the solicitor's finals. And at the end of the day, I decided to go for the bar uh, because I could qualify in a shorter time. And it wasn't um, (laughs) actually with the intention of entering practice at that stage. So it's, it's quite fortuitous in a way. And it was really only once I started pupillage Mm. in a shipping set. I was a pupil to to Michael Howard uh, QC Mm -hmm. at Queen Elizabeth Building uh, then. I experienced the excitement of crafting arguments Mm. that would be used in court and realized that being at the bar gives you the ability to shape the development of the law and have a real ability to shape the outcome of the case that you are acting in. And for me, that was it. Academic life really ceased to have the Mm. same appeal (laughs) after that. And, you know, once I was on the path, I have not looked back.
1: Well, you know, that's an incredible story. And so many of us are grateful that you did choose practice and not academia. Uh, So uh, thank you for making that choice. (laughs) So you've mentioned the inspirations a few inspirations I guess you've had in your career so far as you were developing and building your practice. You've mentioned your parents, particularly their sacrifices they made for you and that's something that so many of us, including myself, can certainly identify with wholeheartedly. And you've mentioned Michael Howard QC. Tell us a little bit about the mentors you've had at the bar in the legal practice generally who over the years have given you inspiration?
0: Well, I think the main person I really need to thank, and he's now long passed away, but was Geoffrey Bryce, QC. And he was head of my chambers uh, until he died in 1999. He was my mentor and he led me in numerous shipping cases throughout my career as a junior. I mean, he was kind, he was inspirational, he was a big supporter of women. And it was largely thanks to him that we developed a chambers, which was a big support network for women. He was very sort of far-sighted in that regard, and he was very equitable and fair. In terms of others, I must say I'm also a big fan. Of Lord Clark. I mean, he was formerly Anthony Clark, you see, as you know. And he led me in my first big case. This was in the mid 80s, the Choco Star, that infamous case about Mm, agency of necessity. And he, because he had a very busy practice, ended up being double booked for something. (laughs) We were in the Court of Appeal. And he wasn't there for the reply. And we were against <laughs> um, a really very, very senior leader from mm. Seven Kings Bench Walk um, on the other side, who was at least sort of 25 years older than me. And I mm-hmm. would that he'd been in silk for 25 years, that's only 25 wow. years older than me. Yeah. And um, Tony Clark said, you'll be absolutely fine, Vasanti. You know this case. And he let me address the Court of Appeal in reply mm. against this leader. And we won. and obviously, that's a great boost for confidence. Mm. And I was very grateful to him for trusting me with doing that. Now, as a leader, he was great fun to work with. And as a judge, you know, I think he was second to none in terms of his temperament and his academic ability. And he also showed, because of his sense of fun, that you could be a really impressive lawyer at the top of your game. And still enjoy life. It was not mm. a total grind, and I think that was a great inspiration for me and many others. I'm sure.
1: Wow. Well, yeah. You know, it's funny you say that about how Lord Clark sort of wasn't available. I remember when I was a bit younger, my a then boss made himself unavailable, so I had to do something. So, uh, which, which, which was absolutely fine because I because it meant me arguing something that I that I wasn't expecting to argue. So. Very similar, but no way as distinguished as your intervention <laughs> in the Court of Appeal. But, uh, you know, let me touch on something you spoke about a short while ago for Sunday, which is about supporters of women. One of the many reasons why I'm overjoyed to have you on this podcast is because you are inspirational to on many levels, but you are a very prominent, successful female lawyer. And there aren't many people of your seniority and your background. And you've mentioned your ethnic background who are doing what you do, and I'm as passionate as you are about diversity, equality, and inclusion in its truest sense. I mean, again, for obvious reasons. I'd be really interested in your thoughts, just to pick up on what you said about, we all know diversity, equality, and inclusion is, is critical, and the legal profession, like many other professions, has to look like and feel like what it should do, given the makeup of, of our society generally. But I'd be interested in your thoughts as to, first of all, how you've seen this develop, because I can say in my 30-year career it's developed a lot, but I'm interested in your thoughts. And also, what more can we all be doing to ensure that we achieve the best possible diversity, equality and inclusion?
0: It certainly has developed a lot, Gatum. You're absolutely right. In the mid-'80s, when I came to the bar, women were very much... In a minority. And I was fortunate in getting pupillage in a chambers where there were already two other um, successful women. We supported each other in terms of altering perceptions about how effective women could be in court and also about how committed they were because they were not, they were having families, but they were not giving up work in order to uh, become full time um, mums. So yes, it has changed a lot. I think in the 1980s, there tend to be a little bit of polarity. I mean, some women who were making it at the bar felt that they needed to become more like men. And so they didn't allow their feminine side to really show and they were not really catering for family life. I think that changed over time. And I think at the bar, it's been much easier to have a family and a successful practice than perhaps it has been in a firm Mm -hmm. of solicitors. Mm -hmm. And again, that's another reason why I'm very grateful that I went to the bar because you have, I think, the ability at the bar to take on as much or as little at any given time as you Mm -hmm. want. And nobody really notices Whereas I think in a firm of solicitors, you have to be much more visible at your desk. And certainly I know of many very able female lawyers um, in firms who, because they were not able to have one day working from home, say, were forced to give up. And as a result, one has lost huge talent from you know that side of the profession because of Really the, the inflexibility of attitudes that prevailed you know back in the 90s and even into the, the 2000s mm-hmm. which didn't really um, affect people so much at the bar. but going forward, I think now we have a much healthier proportion of women in chambers, both commercial chambers as well mm-hmm. as other chambers. And I think this reflects the fact that um, women are now finding that they are able to compete on a more level playing field, but there's still Mm. a lot of work to be done. And it's an obvious and a given that there has to be equal opportunity for everybody based on their ability, irrespective of their gender or ethnicity or any other irrelevant factor. And we all need to try and do our bit to make sure everybody who has that ability is given the opportunity, you know, to grow in confidence Mm -hmm. and to shine. And I think, you know, in chambers, I've certainly tried to do that, you know, by mentoring younger members. Mm -hmm. The pledge initiative, which solicitors have have got behind in a a, a great way and uh, the bar supports wholeheartedly, is very important. And that has achieved a great deal in terms of increasing uh, visibility um, of women and people who are not from the usual backgrounds. When we sit as co-arbitrators, and I've certainly tried to do this myself, Mm -hmm. and we have the opportunity to suggest candidates for chair, I always try and include at least one, if not more, in that list, you know, who come from um, a different background, be it a woman, be it somebody, you know, who's from a different ethnic background, perhaps somebody who's not sat as chair before, so that they get a chance to show Mm -hmm. their talent. And then hopefully things can Mushroom and kick off from there. And indeed, I've benefited from that. And I now have, you know, a busy practice as arbitrator as a result. And I'm sure we can all do our bit for people that we can think of that are deserving and perhaps, you know, might not think they're necessarily going to be, you know, selected mm-hmm. by people. But if you're given a chance to be showcased and mm-hmm. you are diligent, prepare the brief and you do your best and you, you're fair then the chances are that you will get repeat
1: appointments. Yeah. Well, no, that's uh, no, that's wonderful. Thank you. And, you know, whilst I can't yet call you Dame Vasanti because you're not on the high court bench, uh, I wish you were, by the way, because, it, because you would be another trailblazer in that respect. You are obviously, as we've been talking about, a very experienced arbitrator, and you still maintain a council practice. Yes. And you know, that obviously means that life is, I'm sure, never boring for you professionally with something. So uh, right. because you've got lots of plates spinning in the air at any one time. But one of the things I've always been very fascinated about, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on is taking those two roles of counsel and of arbitrator. And from your perspective, what each of those roles asks of you, the different things that it asks of you, and how you can in many ways switch hats and change tack from one to the other. I'd be very interested in, in your thoughts on that, Vasanti. Yes. Well,
0: I mean, both roles call for the same analytical skills as a, as a lawyer. When you're acting as counsel, then the art of persuasion in argument um, is paramount, together with The ability to cross-examine effectively and that in turn requires a very considerable amount of preparation before a hearing so when you're acting as counsel you really have to learn to survive on very little sleep and that can sap your energy if you are full-time counsel um, and you're now you know the sort of age that i am and that's really partly why i have decided to combine counsel practice with arbitrator practice. Um, And that mixed diet works very, very well for me. Now, as an arbitrator, your main job is to get the answer right and ensure the fairness of of the process Mm -hmm. that you're presiding over. It isn't a combative role. It isn't a stressful role. And there's also an opportunity for really considerable collaboration if you're sitting in a Mm -hmm. panel, which is tremendously enjoyable, and I think um, contributes to the end product, uh, i.e. the decision, Mm -hmm. uh, being uh, the right one. But at the bar, obviously, there is the adrenaline, the excitement of crafting the arguments being at the front end of presenting the case. And it's tremendously enjoyable, and I still get a huge buzz from doing it. But I think in terms of just managing energy levels, and making sure that life continues to be um, as enjoyable as it can be. Um, I think the diet of both works for me very well indeed.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sure it is. But, I, you know, knowing you and your incredible levels of energy and stamina, I know you can do it all. I mean, uh, <laughs> so one last sort of thing I wanted to ask you about, the whole arbitration area, and then I'm going to ask you of sort of maybe a few more sort of d- different things. But... Um, Arbitration as a mechanism for, for dispute resolution has obviously evolved over the years. It's now the most important dispute resolution mechanism for international business, for all the reasons which you and our listeners will be aware. But it's, it's something that has to continue to evolve. And it has to be better and better so that the users of arbitration feel it's the best mechanism it can be. Yes. And there has been, as you know, Vasanthi, a number of debates that are ongoing about should we be reforming various aspects of arbitration? What can we do to sharpen arbitration? Should we be amending the Arbitration Act? There's a number of things and ideas that have cropped up. And as you know, there's been for a long time a bit of a tension between how much the courts should intervene in arbitration and how much they shouldn't. The former Lord Chief Justice, Lord Thomas, obviously, as you know, felt there should be perhaps be more intervention, and he got criticised for that. But this debate's a very fascinating one, and I'd be very interested in your thoughts, just given the incredible experience you have, as to, from your perspective, what more can we all do to ensure that arbitration is the best form of what it is, and what can we do to improve it, to make it better?
0: I mean, one of the things that I think is a bit of a a sore in arbitration is the cost uh, element. And I think costs are increased by an insistence on memorials, written memorials. I think they add a level of expense to the process, which is not warranted. I mean, obviously, if the parties are insistent on memorials, then arbitrators have to listen. But I wonder whether that insistence is born of the fact that they've never tried doing um, a more commercial court style of pleadings, you know, followed by witness statements and expert evidence, which I think is actually more efficient. I also think that we ought to consider trying to consider costs at an early stage, um, like we do In disputes in the commercial court. So one would perhaps look at keeping costs to a budget and only increasing that budget if there's really good reason to do so because of unforeseeable developments in the case. And if you're looking at a budget to work to from the outset, then the chances are you're you're going to stick to it. I think also a way of keeping costs down is to make Video conference hearings—the norm for even for final evidentiary hearings—I'm sure that mm-hmm. most of us have done quite a number now over lockdown um, on Zoom or Teams or whatever other platform. Mm-hmm. And you know, speaking for myself, although as counsel, it perhaps is not as easy for those of us that like physical bundles and spreading out and standing and advocating—you know, using your body—to um, to make your arguments in quite the same way. I think you can learn to make it doable and effective. But I think as an arbitrator, I thought it was actually easier to focus and concentrate on the witness. And I didn't think there was any disadvantage to not having that witness physically present in a room for me to observe, because I have him on a tile, I'm looking at his or her face, I'm scrutinising as to you know whether somebody is having difficulty in formulating an answer, and I think that you know video conference hearings uh, for final evidentiary matters ought to be the way to go, unless there is really good reason not to. So, for example, if you've got fraud allegations and you need to have you know a witness sort of scrutinised by everybody in the same room uh, for demeanour, that may be an exception, but otherwise, I think go for the cheaper route, which will involve, you know, not traveling uh, for all of our international clients. I think also arbitrators should be encouraged to be more proactive. I'm thinking in particular here, in shipping arbitrations, where it's a bit of a problem, because there is no sort of initial procedural conference as there is in LCIA arbitrations, ICC Mm -hmm. arbitrations, um, CIAC Mm -hmm. arbitrations, where you set the Procedural timetable at the outset, and then you stick to it. Many LMAA arbitrations, they they simply appoint you, and then it goes to sleep,
2: mm-hmm. and um,
0: nobody really expects you to sort of you know rattle the tin and say what's going on. Um, they just want you to you know sit there quietly and let the parties get on with it. And I think um, that isn't always the best best way. I think there ought to perhaps be an initial CMC to set the procedural timetable. And then if people want to get extensions, they can explain that that's agreed and why. I mean, in terms of Arbitration Act uh, amendments, I know that the Law Commission's looking into this. And I think it's it's healthy because we're now 25 years on and we need to Mm -hmm. make sure that it's going to be functioning in the best way. I mean, I've seen... Section 67 appeals, in particular, which have been hugely expensive, mm-hmm. um, which have involved rerunning exactly the same arguments that were run below. And it's been done because it's permitted under the Act. Mm-hmm. And invariably, the arbitrator's decision has been respected, particularly where it's been based mm-hmm. on fact. So looking at that again, I think, could be uh, quite helpful. I think also perhaps sidestepping. The the tribunal and going straight to court where it's a jurisdiction question could cut out a level of expense. So, those are my initial thoughts um, Mm -hmm. on how we might um, make it more streamlined and perhaps make it more user
1: friendly. All very insightful. Thank you, Vasanthi. I mean, one of the other things just on that, just a limited point just to follow on from that which is that we've seen as you of course know as well very well over the last few years the introduction of expedited arbitration you know under certain thresholds and that sort of thing Um, I've often thought and UNCITRAL has just brought out its expedited rules which actually don't have a financial limit on the amount of the claim as compared to ICC where it's two million dollars and below yes And I'm a fan of that in the appropriate sort of case. I mean, I wonder, I mean, of course, every case is different for something, be it shipping commodities, joint venture, you know, power plant, whatever it is. But just your thought as to do you think extradited arbitration might have um, a bigger use in some of these bigger disputes, um, assuming the parties can agree to it?
0: I do. I mean, I've just actually finished writing an award on an expedited arbitration. It was a, a small value one for, for SEAC. But I do think that um, it would benefit from being used more extensively after consultation with the parties in agreement, because it, one, will obviously limit the amount of cost that can be spent on it. It does ensure everybody is focusing minds very closely on what the real issues are. And, you know, I, I think, again, we ought to be looking at financial limits being higher than perhaps they are in appropriate cases where the issues are fairly straightforward.
1: Thank you, Vasanti. It's really, I mean, it's, I, mean I could talk to you for ages, but these uh, podcasts do have a time limit, unfortunately. And. And I could, as you know, I could chat to you for hours. But I mean, it's been absolutely fabulous to talk to you about those amazing things we've just spoken about. I wonder if I could finish off the podcast by asking you some more lighthearted things, um, which have got nothing to do with your incredible career and your career to come. But tell us, you know, Everyone's been through a terrible period, this lockdown. It's it's stopped just travelling and stuff. And things are gradually coming back to some level of, well, hopefully normality. But tell us, what is your favourite holiday destination? Oh, that's easy to answer. Uh,
0: that's got to be the island of Nevis in the Caribbean, oh. <laughs> which I have not visited since February yeah. 2020, and I'm desperate to get back. The wildlife there is wonderful. Beaches are amazing. <laughs> And you feel that you can truly unwind and relax there. So that's, that's the place for me.
1: Wow. Well, I've not been to Nevis. Uh, I've heard of St Kitts and Nevis being one of those offshore jurisdictions, but uh, I shall keep that on my holiday destination. Yeah. You, you, sure. you probably
0: heard about it in the context of money laundering. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about that side of it. But yeah. if you're just going as a tourist, it's lovely. Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. No, no, that's definitely now on my bucket list. And so, you know, when you've, you know, you've finished some hard submissions, you've finished listening to a day's argument as an arbitrator and you want to put some music on, what is your go-to music selection or selections? Oh, gosh.
0: It does depend on my mood, but I think if I want to relax after court, it's got to be Baroque for me um, Mm -hmm. and probably Bach because that is just so soothing and it relaxes you and inspires you. But if I am wanting to get ready to go out somewhere, then it will be a question of maybe some pop with a great beat, um, some jazz. I've recently discovered I like jazz after having gone to Ronnie Scott's and um, I'm now now a a firm fan. So, um, yes, it depends on the mood.
1: Yeah, I love it. I love it. And my last question to you is, you know, I recently went to the cinema again after, what, two years or so? I watched the new James Bond film. I must say it was pretty good, actually. I've Um, I've seen that too. I I agree. I think it's the best Bond film. Yeah, it was pretty good. It was a bit of a sad ending, but understandably sad in that sense. I won't spoil it for those who haven't seen it yet. But, I mean, is there one film that really stands out to you that if you were to get a chance to sort of have a bit of downtime and just watch it again, is there a film that you think, wow, that's the best film I've ever watched?
0: I think probably it's a film from the mid-90s called The English Patient. Oh, yes. Which um, has got two of my favourite actors, Ray Fiennes and Kristen Scott Thomas. Yeah. Wonderful underlying story. Michael Ondaatje wrote the book. And it's impossibly romantic, beautifully uh, filmed. And every time I watch it, I cry. I love it. Yeah.
1: Wow. Wow. Well, what a great way to finish the podcast. Vasanthi. thank you very, very much for your time today. It really has been an absolute joy to have you on. I mean, I make no bones about it. I've been a massive admirer of yours. I respect you immensely. So having the chance to do this conversation with you on this podcast has been fabulous. So thank you very, very much.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Gautam. It's been great chatting with you.
2: (laughs) Okay, see you soon. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McCardle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Jose Estigarraga at jia at readsmith.com. You can find our podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Readsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Readsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter.